0: Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to keep going, keep reading, keep studying, seeing how the Holy Spirit is working and moving in this early time period of the church, the birth of the church. We saw some of the struggles and the issues that they've gone through already. We uh, looked over the past couple of weeks at chapter seven, and we saw the uh, martyr, um, the first martyr of the church, Stephen, and uh, his great testimony before the religious leaders as he was called out on term, um, uh, uh, accusations of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, against the law. They're they're pulling every stop to get this uh, Stephen in trouble, and. Uh, when we came to a close, uh, at the close, we saw that there was no trial, uh, formal trial made. They just, in response to his testimony, and, and, uh, in response to his, his um, teaching them what the Word of God truly says, and how they had been resistant to God's Word the whole time, they rushed at him, and they threw him out of the city, and they stoned him. And we were introduced to, um, at the end of our study last week, we were introduced to Saul. Uh, as he was one who, the witnesses, remember, uh, the, pre- the people that would stone the person who was guilty of blasphemy were the witnesses. And so the witnesses laid their coats down because they were going to go hurl rocks at Stephen. And they laid them down and were interest were introduced to Saul. It says a young man named Saul, one of the men who were a part of this, this synagogue. One of the we learn more about him. He was a Pharisee. But we closed with um, the first portion of chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And this is an example of how um, the the biblical, the guys that put together the Bible, uh, how sometimes their chapter and verse divisions were not that good. <laughs> so, in verse chap- or chapter 8, verse 1, really, that first sentence should be uh, connected with what we had studied last week, and that's why we ended on it. But we're going to pick up and see what pres- uh, went on to happen after the church, um, after this situation where Stephen was killed was stoned to death. And um, we're going to see the scattering of the church. And we're going to see what the Lord did in and through them as, he, uh, as they went about carrying the good news of the gospel. But we, we know that this persecution, it says, actually, let's just read this. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. amen. Let's read. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc at the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So this persecution, we're told, uh, began to arise in a greater degree around this time of Stephen's death. All that had happened, they actually drugged one of the deacons. This, this wasn't one of the apostles that was being uh, pulled into uh, to give testimony in front of the religious leaders. This was one of the church members, one of the servants, the deacons there. And so we saw that the, they weren't just going for the leaders anymore, but there was now hostility going against the, the members of the church. And all that happened to Stephen, this whole situation, really stoked the, the fires of animosity and fury within those religious leaders and uh, these opponents to this new Jesus movement. And we're told about what happened with Stephen here in these first few verses. We saw that he was was buried, and it points out that these were devout men that buried him. Now, the last time we heard about devout men was when? At the beginning of Acts. And the devout men were people, were, uh, people from all around um, Jerusalem who had made the journey in to celebrate the feasts and to uh, come to worship on these holy days. And it's interesting, you know, that, that these were the men who, who were mourning and who went to go bury Stephen, probably some of his own countrymen, because we know from our past study that Stephen was one of the Hellenistic Jews that the Lord had uh, been working through, who had, uh, he had received the Holy Spirit, had come to faith in Christ, and the Lord was using him to minister to the widows in the church, uh, among other, uh, six other men, uh, whom we'll learn more about one of them today. And, but these devout men, those uh, who are from the other nations, these Jews who are uh, from other cultures, grab Stephen's body and with a great lamentation over him they went and buried him gave him a proper burial now it wasn't bad to give a um, somebody who was uh, punished by way of stoning it wasn't bad to give them a proper burial but it was against the Jewish law and custom to actually mourn over them to actually lament over them because you were you were basically saying that the judgment was wrong. You were going against, you know, crying for this person who died for their sin, really, their their disobedience. But we know that Stephen was not wrong and that he was unjustly killed. And so even the people that buried him were going out on a great length and state, uh, making a statement uh, of lament over Stephen. And, uh, And so we see that kind of displayed here. Uh, This great sorrow that had occurred uh, over the loss of Stephen and the ministry that he had given. Think about the people who had received the healings and the people that had received the words that Stephen had shared with them. Think about those who were so impacted by his ministry. The widows that had heard him, uh, uh, had received the ministry from him. Of course there would be lament and crying. When we lose somebody so close to us in the in the church, a brother or sister, it hurts. And especially at a point like this, where he, his life was taken and it was snuffed out by these, these uh, religious leaders. Now, Paul draws, I mean, uh, Luke draws our attention to uh, who was behind this persecution. And, and he chooses to highlight Saul. Now, the main reason he chooses to highlight Saul is because Saul would be uh, a prominent figure in the remainder of this, this book of Acts. Uh, under the name of Paul, uh, we would, we'll see him using that name and as he ministers. But he's highlighting Saul. And he highlights Saul's zeal in his persecution against the church. And uh, this is really, I mean, it's interesting to look at what was going on in Saul, his campaign to wreak havoc in the church, because his conversion uh, will later follow in chapter 9. We'll see this man whose whose sole uh, occupation was to destroy the church, as we see. But he was consenting to, to Stephen's death. And we're told in verse 3 that he made havoc of the church to destroy this Jesus movement. He wanted to end it. End it. And we're told that he entered every house. This was the places that they met. You might remember in chapter 5, verse 41, it says, So that they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So these houses were the place of ministry. And Saul, he's going to cut, he's going to go straight for those. He's going to cut at those. going to try and shut those down. And the church, you know, following the persecution of the apostles, they continued to meet. And they continued to follow Jesus and listen to the teaching of, word, of the word. And they continued to do it still following Stephen's death. And I'm sure that Paul or Saul was so infuriated at this. So infuriated. Thinking that the death of Stephen would have been enough of a statement to cause these Jesus people to stop gathering. That this, this killing of one of their own would, uh, would end it, would snuff it out. Would have sent the message of cease and desist, but it didn't. Because it's not consistent on one man, it's a move of God's spirit, it's a move of of what he is doing in his church. And then we're told that he was dragging men and women off to prison. Women were included in part of Luke's description because it would speak of the, the great zeal that Paul or that Saul was showing. Uh, his zeal against the church, he was willing to drag the women off too, putting them into prison or a place of holding until they would receive this trial for the charges probably similar to Stephen's of promotion of Jesus as the Messiah, as the way, the truth, and the life. But we see Paul's intensity talked about later on. Uh, Some of his own words, uh, Luke records in Acts 9 verse 1 and 2 that Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was getting permission from these high priests to go in to these other areas, other cities, other towns, and to to arrest people and bring them to Jerusalem for trial, uh, for blasphemy. And that was what he was doing when he met the Lord, when he came in contact with the Lord. And then Paul, in his own words in chapter 26 of Acts, uh, describes how he felt and what he was thinking when he was going after the church in such a way. He said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I showed up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This was Paul's testimony of how he felt concerning the church. Exceedingly enraged, shutting them up in prison, casting my vote against them in their death. This man hated Jesus. He hated the church. In Galatians, he gives testimony again in chapter 1, verse 13. For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This was his goal, was to destroy the church. Now, this really shouldn't have come as a shock to any of the disciples. Because Jesus had spoken of this type of persecution in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up, rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What an empowering message from the Savior. Do not be fearful. Whatever I tell you, proclaim it. I am the final judge. I am the one who will bring all these things to light. There's nothing that they do that they will not be held accountable for. But you might have noticed the one part. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And that's what we see happening in the church. In verse 1, it says that they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. So, in light of persecution, we see the church scattering throughout the area. Now if you remember back when we first got into Acts, uh, we talked about Judea being the outer area around Jerusalem. It was the countryside. it was rural. there was hills and areas that people were living in, but this was just the outer area of the I had uh, a map, but I think uh, we were unable to get that going this morning but uh, so you can just think about, it. you got Winston-Salem right here, and then you got all the other areas around. you got and Tobaccoville, and you know, King, and all those other things that are kind of on the outskirts. That would be kind of like the Judea area. And then we we're told that they went into Samaria. Now, this is the area north of Judea. Or uh, in the Old Testament, it was referred to as the Northern Kingdom. It was 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're told later on in Acts, in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists and preached the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So we see that Luke is concentrating on these these two areas because this is where the emphasis of chapters 8 through 12 occur, in the areas of Samaria and Judea. But many more went even further. Now, we do see this interesting note here in verse 3 that says, except the apostles. The, the, The those that were in Jerusalem were scattered except the apostles. And there's a couple of uh, ideas behind why they, they had stayed there. One, they had the courage to do so, that Holy Spirit boldness. You know, they were not at all deterred by any of the threats of the religious leaders. But uh, some might suggest, too, that at the advice of Gamaliel, they left the apostles alone. The ones that were leading the church there in Jerusalem. And went after the smaller groups, those like Stephen, who were a deacon, or Philip, or the other guys, Nicanor and such. Uh, But there's also the idea that the persecution was more focused on the Hellenistic Jews, those that had made their way to Jerusalem way back for the... The festivals and had remained after receiving the Holy Spirit and, and accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Those who had remained in Jerusalem to grow and to learn in their faith were now the ones that were able to go and spread out and start making their way back home. Uh, but those are just some ideas, and we know that the Lord just had Luke put it here because we'll see the apostles uh, really kind of being a chief, a Jerusalem would be like a hub where these, the apostles were that they would send out missionaries. They would also be uh, making decisions and making sure that, that what was happening in the wider area was still in agreement with the Spirit of God. We'll see when the Gentiles received the Lord that they went to Jerusalem and proclaimed what had happened among the Gentiles. And they said, you know, we're having this dispute. You got these Gentiles coming in from, uh, you know, they're all heathens, and they're receiving Jesus, and they used to sacrifice and eat foods that were given to idols, and we, we can't even, you know, be in the same room with them at this time. What do we do? And so they would come up with the, as we'll see later on, a, a list of things that were given to the Gentile believers really to preserve unity between the two groups of Jews and Gentiles. But nonetheless, the apostles stayed there in Jerusalem and were We're often sent out, as we'll see next week, as we continue on, Lord willing. But in verse 4, what were they doing? What was the church doing when they were scattered? It says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In spite of the opposition that the church faced, the word of God continued to spread. And it was spread by his people. And those who were scattered were just sharing their faith. I like how Wes, uh, a Greek scholar, or Bible scholar translates it. He goes, they went about proclaiming the good news of the word. That's what they were doing. It was simple. They were publishing the good tidings. They were telling of the good news of what Jesus has done. they were saying, they were proclaiming that the Messiah had come. We notice that the persecution that they faced, this pushing them out of Jerusalem, didn't stop them from talking about Jesus. Wherever they went, they were sharing their faith. And it's interesting, the quality of faith that is expressed by them, how it stood up through persecution, how it stood up through displacement... And if we take a wider look, God was going to use this persecution to accomplish his will. That the message would be taken beyond, to Jeru- Judea, beyond Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the world. The Great Commission. Now we look at this faith and we think about what this church went through and how they were scattered about. But how does this, how does someone come to that kind of faith? How does that faith develop? Well, I think we can look at what the early church was doing and seeing how that type of faith was fostered in their midst. In Acts 2.42 and 46, we, receive, we see that they were committed to God's Word. And they were committed to fellowship with the saints, to gathering together in homes and in the, in the temple They were sharing with one another in communion and in their love feasts, kind of like what we're going to have next week as we celebrate what God's doing, a love feast. We also see that they were committed to prayer together and individually. And they did this daily. It was a daily routine for them. To have this time set apart for God's word, God's people, and for prayer. Going to the temple, going from house to house, and worshiping God. You see, a close walk with Jesus, though, it might be noted, will not keep us from trial, as we see here. But he will use us through those tribulations and trials. Sometimes the Lord will use those things to shake us out of our comfort zones, to do something he has actually called us to do. What did, Jesus, what did Jesus call the early church to do? Go out beyond Jerusalem. Where did they stay? In Jerusalem. So he used this trial to kind of push them out of their comfort zones he, to get them to move on. His... His desire is for the world to hear this message. Not for it just to be kept within the four walls of the temple or a home or something else. His desire is that all people will hear this message and have the opportunity to respond. So sometimes the Lord will allow things to come along that will shake us up and push us out. Kind of like that that, uh, mother bird that has to push the, you know the chick out of the nest to get it to flap its wings so it'll know it can fly, you know? It sounds like a really terrifying thing to be pushed out of a tree, you know, but that's how you learn to fly, right? So a question that we can ask ourselves this morning is how am I responding in difficulties? Do I view them as gospel opportunities? In Christ, the difficult circumstances we experience, though not convenient, though not enjoyable, though not according to our plans, can and will be used for His glory if we allow them to be. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purposes. Now we continue on in verses 5 through 8, and it says, Then Philip... We're going to hear about Philip now. Went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So, Luke, in this chapter 8, we learn about our um, antagonist, Saul. And now we have Philip. Philip being one of those original um, men, those Hellenist men, who were chosen to minister to the Hellenistic widows, filled with the Holy Spirit, and being used by the Lord, we see, we see Philip, one of the first ones reported at least going out to Samaria. And he went to this area of Samaria. And it says the city here, but it was more likely uh, a city. It's better translated a city. Because Samaria was an area. And not it was a city at one point in, in history, but in, in this New Testament time, it was more of a it was an area uh, made up of cities, and so we don't know what city he went to. There's plenty of guys who'll give you their opinion uh, of what city it was, but we're not told. And so he goes to this area, and heading to the north, thirty mile track, We already learned this. And um, the history of Samaria with the Jews is pretty interesting. It, in the Old Testament, it was the capital of the northern kingdom. And uh, the Samaritans, it was, you know, this half-breed of Jews that, uh, Jews that had stayed in the first exile, that were able to stay in the land, usually they were poor and they would keep the land, uh, stayed there. But all these other uh, conquering kingdoms would come through and they would plant their own people in, in these areas that they conquered. And so over time, these, these Jews mixed with those cultures and they became like this half-breed kind of group. They, and so they were viewed in like a very negative, I used the term half breeds because that was the term that, that the Jews would refer to, as, uh, to the Samaritans as. They weren't pure blooded Jews in a way. And so there was also an animosity that had developed with them because when, during the time of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, you know, there was the commissioning of the temple to be built. And we learned that the Samaritans wanted to help build, help the Israelites build this new uh, temple, but they would not allow them to. And so there was this, because of that nature of them being half-breeds and such, and so they. This contention began back then, and it continued all the way to this point, having feuds over different things. uh, One of the um, kings had come through and destroyed their temple. We had the Samaritans. They had their own temple. They also followed only the books of Moses' scripture. so they they disregarded any of the prophets, anything else. It was only those first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those, that was their scriptures. And so there's this, it's interesting to see that Philip, one of the Hellenists, one of the Greek-speaking Jews, was the first one to head into the Samaria area. I like how that rhymes. It's kind of a funny little thing there. But we see in the New Testament, Samaria, it uh, Mention a few times and get we can get a clearer understanding of how they the Jews felt about the Samaritans in the New Testament. Jesus's ministry, uh, we're told by Matthew, was focused on the Jews first in Matthew 10. Uh, And he tells his disciples, Don't go into the area of Samaria, but go to the house of Israel first, preach the gospel to them, the good news of the coming kingdom. And then Luke will later highlight uh, the contentions that existed where the Samaritans did not want to receive Jesus when he went to come into their town. And so we, we see Luke highlighting how James and John wanted to call down judgment on them, call down fire on them. They didn't deserve to live. They, won't want to, they didn't want to receive you, Jesus. Call down fire, you know, burn them up. And then We also see Jesus' heart for the Samaritans in John chapter 4. Because you remember the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. And we are told that Jesus needed to go to Samaria. And how a seed was planted in the hearts of the people long before Philip even brought the good news. But verse 5 tells us that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. He went proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the Messiah. Jesus, I mean, Philip is doing what Jesus called them to do. That great commission where Jesus said in Luke 24, thus it is written... And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And we see Philip uh, expressing in his own life what Paul would later tell Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season." Philip, being kicked out of where he was staying there in Jerusalem, was ready to preach the gospel in his travels. He was ready. And Peter himself will write in one Peter three fourteen But even if ye should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Let sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Can you sympathize with Philip here? Can you kind of put yourself in his place a little bit, being kicked out, maybe just going on a journey? Maybe, we don't know where he was heading if, if the Lord had told him to go straight to Samaria. But all we know is he's heading towards Samaria. And think about the changed life of Philip. What was being exuded by him as people encountered him. And it gave opportunity for him to declare the reason for the hope that was in him. People asked him, what brings you, you know, Coming from Jerusalem, what's bringing you through Samaria? Oh, you know what? I just got kicked out of where I was staying. They, had, they killed one of my brothers in the, in the Lord, and but man, God, God is doing something. And they go, Well, who's what's God doing? You know? And they start asking him questions. Start uh, uh, interviewing him to find out what's going on and he gets to tell them about Jesus. He gets to open up the gospel to them and begin to tell them more. Well, before Stephen died, there was this, this man, Jesus Christ, or Jesus, who's the Christ, the Messiah. And they, the Samaritans believed in the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. But he's preaching them. He's preaching to them Christ. The Messiah literally meaning the anointed one the King of Israel, the Christ, the Savior of the world, as John 420, or 4.42 says. Let's look at what Jesus said to that Samaritan woman. They were looking for this Messiah. And this is who Philip was preaching to them. In John 4.25 it says, The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman and yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. The simplicity of, Of Philip's message. It's the same simple message that we carry. We talk about Jesus. Jesus is the message. Why he came, what he did, what he's promised to do, it's the simple message of the gospel. In verse 7, it talks about the multitudes who heard Philip preach. It says, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. This must have been a, been a large group of people that were hearing because uh, Luke continues on using that word, multitudes. You know, he, was, he liked to count people at the beginning, remember? With 2,000, 3,000. <laughs> these multitudes, and they were heeding. They kept on giving their attention or holding their mind on the things that Philip was preaching. They were spellbound. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit was attesting to the message that Philip was preaching and performing miracles through Philip. This wasn't the crux of his ministry. The message was. But what we see are that these miracles, uh, the Lord allowed to happen from time to time. And as people heard about these things, they were open to hearing what Philip said. And this is all being done, remember, by a deacon in the church. This was just a man who loved his Savior, and the Lord was using him mightily wherever he went. Performing miracles. Miracles that were occurring alongside the proclamation of God's Word, the gospel. And we see the same thing that's been happening through the hands of the apostles and Stephen the authority and the power of Christ. See these unclean spirits that came out of those who were possessed? This was proclaiming the authority and the power of Christ. The one who Philip spoke of and taught his power and dominion over the spiritual realm was displayed at that moment. Those who were paralyzed and lame They were healed, pointing to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, who Philip was proclaiming to them his power and his authority over the physical realm as well. All power, all glory, all dominion forever and ever to Christ Jesus. And we see the overflowing result in the lives of these Samaritans. What's it say there at the very end at verse 8? And there was great joy in that city. The result of the gospel showing up in power is great joy. And we can see this expressed in what we had already gone through earlier. In Acts chapter two, verse forty-six and forty-seven, that they were that the church was filled with this joy, this move of the Holy Spirit, where they were gathering together, they were digging into the Word, they were sharing everything, and, and um, rejoicing and praying with one another. There was great joy that resulted in the in the Samaritans at the receiving of Jesus as Messiah. In Romans fourteen seven or 1417, we read that, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, joy is, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's imparted and, and influenced by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer. Paul would later go on to say in Romans fifteen thirteen, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the one who fills us with all joy. As the Samaritans received the Lord, they were filled with all joy. Galatians 5.22, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul speaks of the joy that arises from the faith of the gospel. There's a joy that exists in the lives of believers who trust in the glorious gospel of Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting to consider this word joy. We started off with Paul or Saul consenting to, to Stephen's death. And we're wrapping up our study this morning and with this word joy. I look, when I was looking into this word joy, in the word in like a word study concordance, I like it shows antonyms for words. Now, the antonyms for this word joy in the Bible, they speak of grief, sorrow. Consuming grief, birth pangs, pain, mourning, affliction, tribulation, bitterness, suffering, affliction, and distress. That's the opposite of this word joy, at least in how it's translated in the Bible. And as I began to think about that, it's not a far stretch of the imagination to think that these church members who were being persecuted in Jerusalem and driven out of their homes, could develop any of these antonyms, these words other than joy. I think we would even begin to sympathize with them a bit. Yeah, man, that really, that's a bummer. You've been kicked out of your house? I'd be upset too. I can think about how many times I've said that to somebody. I've agreed with their wrong feelings about a situation. Well, they're not wrong, I shouldn't say that. I've encouraged them in those feelings rather than encourage them in their Lord. We would sympathize with their feelings. But we see Philip carry this message of the gospel to the places that Jesus told them to go. Philip went because of the persecution that he encountered. A situation that could have made him bitter or upset sorrowful or distressed, but he went. And what did he do? He spoke about the joy he had. Because the joy that comes from the Lord is beyond any circumstance that we can experience. It's something that comes from him. It's not an outward experience that, that we go through that develops joy within us. Joy starts from the heart, from the Holy Spirit's work, not from some outside thing. Joy comes through only, only through knowing Christ Jesus. And that joy can stand up against the greatest difficulties that a person can experience in this life. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus was able to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Therefore, we... Also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's our victor. He is the reason that we can go through any difficult circumstance, no matter what it is, and remain joyful through it. Because He has saved us. Our place is with Him in heaven, in His presence. Lord, fill us with Your Spirit of joy in what You have accomplished. And what was the joy that Jesus pressed into? That completed work for our redemption. The whole system of redemption or salvation that was finished in what he had done on the cross. The restoration from the fall and the deliverance from all sin in the here and now and the only thing that awaits us is the resurrection. Isn't that awesome? There's not one thing that Jesus Christ has not taken care of This is where our joy comes from, the completed work of Jesus Christ, that no matter what our situation in life, we can endure it with joy because of what he has done. Now, this is the joy that the non-believing world lacks. This is what the Samaritans, when Philip went into their town, they didn't have but saw in Philip. The non-believer, their whole life is wrapped up into this world. And when it's taken away, nothing's left. It's empty. But the believer, when their whole hope and their whole joy and their whole life is wrapped up in the person of Christ, who rose again from the dead, who is enthroned above, who has promised to return, nothing can be taken away from you. And that joy, it's attractive to others. It makes them ask, are you, how are you able to be joyful through the situation, through such difficulties? We saw Philip go to those who the traditional Jew would have avoided. And we saw the Lord use this difficult circumstance in his life to spread the good news and the joy of the Lord. Who or what is your Samaria? Who or what has God been calling you to do that you've been sitting comfortably avoiding? Take the joy that the Lord has given you and spread it. That word "scattering" is—it's the word like grain. Like the, you get the picture of a sower, grabbing their seed and sowing it out, casting it out, seeing what might grow. So the church was scattered about. Where is the Lord calling you to scatter? and to share the good news, to plant those seeds of joy in people's hearts as they receive the gospel. We have opportunities, each one of us, wherever we're placed. The work that we do, the homes that we're a part of, the school, the community, whatever it is that we are, the Lord has placed us in. He desires to use us Let's pray that he does. Father, we come before you this morning and and thank you for your time and your word. Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts for those things that that you desire to do, Lord. Lord, the places that you want us to go, the people you want us to talk to, Lord, those that you you want us to shine that light of joy uh, into their lives. Lord, I just pray that you would direct our steps. Lord, each one of us, Lord, us corporately as a, as a body of believers, your body, Lord, that you show us, Lord, who you have called us to go and proclaim the good news to. Lord, because we know that your work isn't just for us within those four walls. Lord, your work is to see the world, hear your message, have that opportunity to respond to the gospel. Lord, that they may be filled with all hope and with all joy, Lord, forgiveness of sin. Lord, we just ask that you bless, uh, Lord, the remainder of our time together, Lord, that as, as we hang out, Lord, as we fellowship, Lord, may you impress it upon our hearts to minister to one another to pray for one another, to encourage one another through difficulties, to strengthen hands, Lord, to bear one another's burdens. Lord, we, we thank you for this time that we've had. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.